Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to worship here outdoors at Hope Ankeny. Uh, so great to be worshiping with all of you. A great big welcome to those of you who are here, and Hope Ankeny is not your church home, or Hope Ankeny is not even your typical campus home uh, at Lutheran Church of Hope, whether you're from Hope Ames or Hope Des Moines or uh, the Bondurant Hope local site. It's great to be able to gather together for worship. We just heard a song about the goodness of God, how good our God is, and how good is it that as hot as it's been all day and uh, the bright sunshine at about uh, 15 minutes before the start of the service, the clouds just rolled in and we got this nice breeze. I mean, it is absolutely perfect here, which is saying a lot because this has been uh, a season where things are far from perfect. I learned a new acronym this week, VUCA, V-U-C-A. VUCA was a term started to be used in military circles following uh, the end of the Cold War. It stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Uh, recently, over the last several years, VUCA has moved sort of out of the military world and into the leadership and management world. Uh, it refers to this perfect storm of circumstances that can sometimes hit our lives. This is what happens. You're in a VUCA season. You're in a VUCA world when you face a string of complicated and ever-changing unknown unknowns, like what is going to happen next uh, in the year 2020. Or as an article in the Harvard Business Review put it, VUCA is kind of this catch-all phrase that's just a reminder, hey, it's crazy out there. Uh, and that might be a good reminder for us as we get started. Turn to somebody close to you and just remind them, hey, it's crazy out there. We are living in a VUCA world. Very interesting days. Experiencing VUCA in all sorts of ways, whether it's marriage and family, church and school, jobs and sports. Think about your own life and the ways your lives are marked by volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, VUCA. It's crazy out there. And so what's a person to do? Well, obvious answer would be to turn to the Old Testament book of Nahum, of course. Duh. Where else would we turn? I think it's so great. We have certain books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. We call these the major prophets. And then poor people like Amos and Obadiah and Nahum. Uh, they're relegated to this position of minor prophets. Now, the reality is we don't talk about minor prophets very much. I can't remember the last time I referenced Nahum in a sermon. But I want you to just listen to this wisdom from Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. What do we do when trouble comes? Where do we turn when the perfect storm of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity hits our lives? Well, we turn to our good God who is a strong refuge when trouble comes. A God who is close to those who trust in him. That's what Nahum tells us. This is the promise of God, but the reality is a lot of times it feels like God's pretty distant from us when trouble comes. I saw a newspaper cartoon trying to illustrate the trouble that's going on in this year of 2020, and it basically showed a person looking up to the heavens, shrugging their shoulders, uh, you know, palms up, arms outstretched, just kind of going, God, are we, are we still good here? What's going on? 
When trouble comes, our faith gets tested. When trouble comes, we can often be filled with doubt. But what if I told you doubt is necessary for people of faith? Just let that idea kind of float around in your mind for a little bit. Doubt is necessary for people of faith. Let me see if I can illustrate. How many people here believe I have a $20 bill in my hand? Anybody? I don't need a show of hands or anything. Okay, I see, I see your hand. Thank you. Okay, some people believe I have a $20 bill in my hand. Some people maybe don't believe I have a $20 bill in my hand. If you do believe I have a $20 bill in my hand, I'm about to destroy your faith. Because guess what? I do have a $20 bill in my hand. And the reason I say I'm destroying your faith is now that you can see, now that you know I really do have a $20 bill in my hand, Now you no longer need faith. Faith is required only when we have doubts, when we do not know for sure, when we are uncertain. So here's something I think all of us here today have in common. Uh, Those of you who are maybe tuning in on the podcast, we, we all have this in common. Some of us would say we're Christians. Some of us would say we're not Christians. Maybe we don't have that in common. Maybe, maybe you're a church person. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're a Bible person. Maybe you're not. Lots of things we don't have in common. One thing we do have in common is doubt. I know a lot of people who think I cannot become a Christian because I still have doubts. And the, it's kind of the thing that's holding them back from fully engaging in uh, church and uh, making that decision to follow after Jesus is, well, I got to have all my questions answered first. I got to overcome my doubts first. The reality is I know a lot of Christians, church people, who are sometimes tempted to think maybe I'm not a Christian because I still have doubts. It's the year 2020. Our theme is all eyes on Jesus. The reality is our vision, this side of heaven is not perfect. We do not have 2020 vision. I like the way the Apostle Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 13. It's, it's really helpful. He says, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. He's saying, A day is coming. When all eyes on Jesus will have perfect vision, 2020 vision, will know everything completely, but that time has not come yet. And what do we do while we wait for that time? We wrestle with doubt. We're in a message series called Who's In and Who's Out. Uh, Too many of us believe our doubts somehow prove we're on the outs with God. Our doubts mean our faith is somehow defective or it's not good enough. When you look at the way Jesus responds to doubters, you see something different. Luke 24, our Bible reading for today, uh, begins on Easter Sunday. The tomb is empty, and then there's a couple of stories where the resurrected Jesus appears to people. First, Jesus appears on the road to a village called Emmaus. Two followers of Jesus talking about all the events that have transpired from Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem. Then Jesus is arrested and killed. He's buried in the tomb. And now the tomb is empty. The body is missing. Nobody knows what's happened. 
And so Jesus starts walking with these two disciples. Remember, Jesus had 12, his core group of disciples, but there were a bunch of other people who were also disciples of Jesus. These two on the Emmaus Road, disciples of Jesus, and he spends some time walking them through the scriptures, teaching them how the scriptures point to Jesus. Can you imagine how great that would have been? I feel like I've been blessed to hear from a lot of really good, great Bible teachers and Bible scholars over the years, but to have Jesus walk you through the scriptures, that would be incredible. It was so great for these two disciples, they would later say, did not our hearts burn within us as he explained the scriptures to us? They get to that point of their heart burning within them, but initially there's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of doubt. It is not easy to believe someone can rise from the dead. And the details Luke gives us are really important. These two end up inviting Jesus uh, to eat with them in their home. And Luke says, as Jesus is breaking bread and blessing it and giving it to them, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. When their eyes were opened, when they recognized Jesus, all of the doubts that they had began to melt away. Jesus disappears. So one of the cool things about the resurrected Jesus, he just appears and disappears whenever he wants. Well, these two disciples go running back to Jerusalem to find Peter and the other disciples, and they're all kind of excitedly sharing their stories about seeing Jesus, and now suddenly Jesus is in the room with them. And initially, again, they're all filled with doubt. They're scared. They do not know what to think. They do not know what to believe. Notice the details that Luke gives us. This is Luke 24, verse 39. Jesus says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. What do we do when doubts are flooding our heart, flooding our mind? We look to Jesus. All eyes on Jesus. Jesus knows when our eyes are opened, when we see Jesus, our doubts can begin to dissipate. You know, when we start talking about doubting, often we talk about doubting Thomas, who refused to believe in the resurrection until he put his fingers through the nail holes in Jesus' hands. My favorite doubter in the gospel is John the Baptist. You, you maybe don't think of John the Baptist as a doubter. You maybe think of him as one of the most fam- faithful characters in all of Scripture. John's the one who leaps for joy in his mother's womb when the pregnant Mary comes to visit. John is the one who's calling the people and the religious establishment to repentance and baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins in the Jordan River. And when Jesus comes to be baptized, John's the one who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's the one who says, someone is coming after me who's greater than me. I'm not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. John's the one who says, I baptize with water. Someone is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's the one who says, I must decrease and he must increase. John is a man of deep faith. John has absolute confidence. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior. John is convinced. He's confident until he isn't anymore, until he begins to doubt. I don't think it'd be any fun to be a prophet. I do not consider myself a prophet in in any way. I'm, I'm a pastor, but being a prophet would be a really tough job. It's not fun 
calling out the moral failings of people in positions of power. It's not fun telling political leaders they are morally bankrupt. And that's how John the Baptist spends a great deal of his time. When John and Jesus were born, King Herod was ruling that part of the world for the Roman Empire. Herod the Great, he's sometimes called. When John and Jesus are now 30 years old and doing their ministry, King Herod has divided up that part of the world and his four sons are ruling. In an attempt to secure the loyalty of Herod the Great, uh, the Roman emperor said Herod's sons could go be educated in Rome, and so his son Philip did that, married a woman named Herodias. And Herod, uh, Philip, and Herodias are in Rome, and Herod's son Antipas goes to visit them in Rome. Well, Antipas ends up falling in love with Herodias, and they have an affair. Herodias divorces her husband Philip so that she could marry Philip's brother Antipas. And the two of them get married and they begin to build a city called Tiberias on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Well, John the Baptist, every opportunity he had, would call them out for this moral behavior, immoral behavior. And Herodias did not like it. She got really mad. She told her new husband, Antipas, we got to throw John in prison. And that's what they did. And in those days, if the ruler threw you in prison, you knew you were probably facing two hopeless situations. Either you're going to be kept in prison for the rest of your life, or you were going to end up being executed. Neither is a great option. Both options leave you in a pretty hopeless place. And that's where John the Baptist finds himself in Matthew chapter 11. I'll pick up the story in verse 2. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? John is filled with doubt. John, this man of deep and radical faith, John finds himself experiencing VUCA, Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. And John's response to his VUCA world is to wonder and to question and to doubt. Jesus, are you really the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? Now, remember what Jesus says to his doubting disciples in Luke 24. Look at me, look at my hands and feet, look at me and you'll see it's really me. Jesus says something very similar to John's messengers. Go back and tell John what you have heard and what you have seen. Jesus encourages John by reminding him, what do you see when you look at Jesus? And that's a good question for us right now as you know, we kind of get to the end of summer and as we start thinking about what the fall is going to look like as we are, what, five months into the global pandemic now, what do we see when we look to Jesus? Because it's so easy to take our eyes off Jesus. It's so easy to focus on everything else in our life that's kind of going crazy in the midst of this VUCA world. And so time and again, Jesus encourages his followers, take another look at Jesus. Are you looking at Jesus or are you being distracted and has your focus become fixed on things that are not really helpful? Are you focused in on decisions that people are making that you perhaps do not like? 
whether it's related to opening up the economy or uh, back-to-school plans or uh, where are we going to be worshiping this week? Is it online? Is it outside? When will we be able to worship inside? And I think this is a good time as any to just remind you, if you are looking for a perfect church, keep looking. I reminded you last week that this church is filled with people who are hurt and broken and have you know, messed up in all sorts of ways, and, and I'm just talking about the staff when I say that. This church is Lutheran Church of Hope, but our hope is not in us. Our hope is not in the staff. Our hope is not in the pastors. Our hope is not in our ability to make perfect decisions time after time after time and, and get it right every time. Our hope's not in us. Our hope is in Jesus. All eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. What do you see when you keep looking to Jesus? Jesus says to John's disciples, go back and tell him what you've heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And so off they go to tell John what they have seen and what they have heard. And then Jesus turns to the crowd that has gathered, has been watching all of this unfold, and listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, starting in verse 11. John is a man of weak faith. I mean, one bad thing happens in his life, and he begins to question everything. I tell you the truth, people will always remember me, but people will quickly forget about John the Baptist. Just kidding, that's not really what Jesus says at all. Just kind of making that up to make, make sure you're paying attention. Here's what Jesus really says. Matthew eleven eleven. I tell you the truth. Of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. No one is greater than doubting John, who just asked Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Jesus doesn't call John great when John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus calls John great when he asks, when he doubts, when he questions. Part of what Jesus is doing is saying, I want you to bring your questions to me. I want you to bring your doubts to me. And when we look at the way Jesus deals with doubt, we see Jesus is really the good shepherd. He deals with our doubts by giving empathy and love and compassion. Jesus does not demean us when we doubt. He comforts us when we doubt. In the Bible, there's several books of the Bible that are called the books of poetry. And uh, just like in our poetry today, there's rhyming in biblical poetry, but instead of rhyming sounds, the biblical poets would rhyme ideas. Psalm 94 verses 18 and 19 are an example of rhyming ideas. I cried out, I am slipping, but your unfailing love, O Lord, supported me. That's verse 18. Verse 19 rhymes that idea, says almost exactly the same thing, but just a little different way. When doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. I'm just guessing that there's at least one person here today who feels like they're slipping. That rather than feeling like you're standing on a firm foundation, it feels like everything's moving, your relationships feel shaky, your job situation is less than stable. When you look to the future, everything just sort of feels unsteady. The writer of Psalm 94 says, when we feel that way, it's the unfailing love of the Lord that supports us. 
Now, this rhyming idea is when we are slipping or when our mind is filled with doubts, it's the comfort of God that renews our hope. So not knowing how this fall might play out, facing the volatility, the uncertainty, the complexity and ambiguity of what the future holds, I want to highlight our plans for the fall here at Hope Ankeny. Every so often we do a church-wide initiative, an opportunity for the congregation to come together and to focus on the same thing for a season. This feels like the right season to do that. We are just about as scattered and disconnected as we've ever been in my time here at Hope, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. So we want to invite you to participate in Unshakable Hope, Unshakable Hope is a study based off of a book by a best-selling author, Max Licato. We're going to take 12 weeks this fall, and over the course of those 12 weeks, we're going to look at the 12 promises of God. What do we put our hope in? We, we don't put our hope in ourselves. We put our hope in the unshakable promises of God. And we'll help you get into a group. Your group can meet online. If it becomes safe enough, enough for us to meet together, maybe in someone's backyard, maybe in someone's house, uh, we're going to help you do that. Unshakable hope is when we feel like we're slipping, when our minds are filled with doubt, we want to look to Jesus, all eyes on Jesus. So go to hopeankeny.org, follow the links to Unshakable Hope, and together this fall we want to realize this church is a place that welcomes our doubts and welcomes our questions. And the reason we do it is because the one we follow, Jesus Christ, the one who gives us our hope, also welcomed doubters. I mean, I would just love to put a sign out on 36th Street, out in front of our church, that simply says, Doubters welcome. Doubters welcome. Because so many people wonder, is there really a place for me here, a place for me at church? Am I in or am I out? Do I belong? And of course the answer is yes. There's a place for you here. But the reality is we have a lot of work to do to help people know that truth deep in their hearts. I was listening to a podcast recently. I heard a story that I think is kind of this good description of what does it look like to create a place where everybody knows they belong. Uh, this particular podcast is called Typology hosted by Ian Morgan Cron, and he was interviewing his friend Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist specializing in, get this, specializing in the connection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spirituality. I just think it's fascinating stuff. Almost all of it is way over my head. But they told a story during the podcast that hit me right in the heart. Ian Cron, the host, is an Episcopal pastor. He's a recovering alcoholic and he told this story about an Alcoholics Anonymous group he was a part of in Connecticut. He was saying one of the things he loves about AA, these support groups, is just how vulnerable it is. And at the same time, how welcoming it is. It has to be. I mean, if you're going to create a place where people can be vulnerable, you have to be very welcoming. And so because everyone in the group knows what it's like to hit rock bottom, everyone in the group has had to get honest about mistakes that they've made that have had devastating consequences. And the AA group becomes a place to listen, to encourage, a place to look to the future one day at a time, clinging to an unshakable hope that better days are ahead. So the story is he's attending this AA group, and it was a speaker meeting, which means someone in the group is going to stand up and tell their story. Now, as you can imagine... 
there are some incredibly sad and tragic stories that come out in AA meetings. At the same time, there's sort of this been there, done that reality to AA meetings. Most of the time, people are not hearing anything new. They're hearing someone describe, you know, what they used to do or who they used to be, things that they've already done in their life, mistakes that they've already made in their life. And so almost every time when the speaker finishes sharing their story, the group immediately begins to clap. They're applauding the honesty and the vulnerability and the courage it takes to share in that kind of a way. Well, at this particular speaker meeting, a young woman, relatively new to the group, stood up to share, and as she shared her story, it became evident this story was a little shocking and over-the-top even for this recovery group. She was talking about how she was addicted to methamphetamines, and her addiction was uh, so strong that one time she sold a child to get money for more drugs. So bad and so tragic, on and on she went, just awful story. That by the time she got done, instead of applause, the group just sort of sat there in stunned silence. And imagine what must have been going on inside the heart in the mind of this young woman who has just shared this. Like her deepest fears are about to be realized. If people really know who I am and if they really know what I've done, then it'll become true that I'm unlovable, that I don't belong. So one of the members of that particular AA group was an old woman who'd sit in the back of the room every week, this wealthy heiress. She was actually uh, in the first AA group back when Bill W. started AA. And so she hardly ever spoke. She just kind of sat back there and observed, and she smoked one cigarette after another. When the young woman finished her story, and the group is just kind of sitting there in dead silence, not sure how to respond, this old raspy voice from the back of the room boldly declared, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And all the people in that room who grew up in traditional liturgical church settings, they all immediately responded, thanks be to God, and then they just erupted in applause and they went up and they, they hugged that young woman who had just shared. The people in that AA group realized they had just been to church. It was a holy moment because in that moment, the God of the universe stooped down and touched a wretched human being and filled her with hope and filled her with joy and peace and love. And in that holy moment, everyone else in the room realized they were in need of that same touch of divine love. And hope, church, this is why we worship. We don't worship to, we don't gather here to say, hey, we got it all right this week. Come on, let's high five. No, when we're slipping, when we're filled with doubt, when we think we've messed up so badly we're beyond hope, the word of the Lord comes to us from the prophet Nahum. The Lord is good. A strong refuge when trouble comes, he is close to those who trust in him. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, God is on the move and healing can happen and God can make a way for you. Let's stand and let's sing about the powerful ways God is at work in us right now.